Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa aparuta desangamatasatavara So this afternoon has opportunity to reflect on the way it is. And so the space, the silence that is present here and now is oftentimes, most of the people ignore it for the forms that they create in their minds or what they see, hear, smell, taste, touch, what they think, their feelings, their emotions, take priority over what is here and now, these changing conditions which may be present here and now, but arise and cease. And ask yourself, what remains after emotions have arisen and ceased is space and silence. So Dhamma is silent. And it's non-judgmental. So when people tell me they 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 see God as a as a judging figure, that when you die, you you go to some place where there's a judgment made on you, whether you, how good or bad, or how much merit demerit you created in this birth, this, this lifetime that we identify with. <clears throat> but who is judging now, you know, is we find it's ourselves, our habits of thinking. We're the, we're the critical judging faculty that we believe in and trust in or are obsessed with. So it's not Dhamma or some deity or God that passes judgment. It's, it's what we do to ourselves and what we do to others. We, we make value judgments about the goodness or badness of somebody else, whether they're acceptable or unacceptable, whether we like them or don't like them. These are judgments we make on a personal level about relationships with our parents, with our families, with sangha members, 
with foreigners, with strangers. So, what is it that's aware of judging? And this, I encourage you to ask yourself, who is it that makes judgments about your worth or worthlessness? Even if you came to me and want me to make value judgments about how good or bad you are, would you believe it? You might, because you think I'm a wise person and meditated for many years. So I tell you you're bad, would you believe that? Or some would. And so we, we tend to worry about what other people think of us. Because when, especially in a community of this size, we're constantly rubbing up against each other. Different personalities, different conditions that we take very personally. And we pass judgments. Such as that is a good monk or not very good monk. So keep this perspective of good and bad. These are the these are thoughts that we create about conditioned phenomena. And so we, you know, when we come to the end of our lives, if we're not aware of what is deathless, what is non-judgmental, what is all-embracing, all-forgiving, is Dhamma, silence, space. The thinking mind, it, it can say, I forgive you, or I forgive myself. <clears throat> you know, we can make these kind of statements or think these kind of thoughts. But do we really know that, and you know, it's a nice thing to do, to forgive others, ask for forgiveness from the teachers and so forth is, is recommended in this tradition. But it is just words, and it, and it seems to emphasize the separateness, the personal differences on the condition level. So asking can for, for forgiveness is, on a worldly level, is good advice. But on a Dhamma level, forgiveness is learning to Realize what you truly are. There's nothing to forgive. So like metta pavana or loving kindness meditation. You know, we can go through the formula that we have in Pali and English and Thai. <clears throat> So we have a, a kind of written formula for spreading metta, but what is metta here and now? You know, metta isn't judgmental. 
And this emphasized over and over that metta shares equal loving kindness for angels, for devils, for God, for Satan. It's an all-embracing loving kindness which doesn't make value judgments. So value judgments are, you know, part of our critical conditioning. And if that's what we, you know, whether that's what we tend to believe we are, what we've been told by our parents, or what the roles we've assumed in life, the identities that we've taken on in our lives, are artificial conditions that, that we create. In our minds, they arise and cease. And so the whole point of meditation, what we call meditation, is not just going into a tranquil state to get out of the conflicting world of conditioned phenomena by blocking it out, by, by concentrating on something peaceful to where the thinking mind stops creating problems because that is a temporary relief. We call that tranquility. But it's easily disrupted because it's, it's focused on one object shutting everything out, where awareness includes everything. Mindfulness is this open, open to life as we experience it, not, not judging it, but re realizing it, that all conditions are impermanent and not self. So, you know, it's like asking yourself, who, who am I really? Am I really the conditions? The, the, am I really, my heart and soul is Ajahn Sumedho? Am I really a Buddhist monk as, as my permanent identity? Am I truly a American? Man, male, is that my, my true identity, is masculinity, American patriotism, Buddhist identification, conventions, my age, the appearance, what I look like. And if you really question, you know, if you really not not try to get answers in intellectual answers to this question, but to recognize that all the the suffering that we create in our lives is around what we think, what we believe, what we've been conditioned to think and believe in. Because most of it we don't acquire intentionally, it just happens to us through after one is born.
And so the Rumpa Cha's emphasis on this kind of reflective awareness, it was always an encouragement. I found living with Ajahn Chah, you know, someone who was encouraging me to question life, to investigate, wasn't telling me how I should be or what I am. And of course, I never met anybody like that before, that I had any kind of long-term relationship with. Everything else, my social background, my upbringing, my parents, my family life, my education was, was all reinforcing this identity with the changing conditions. <clears throat> so modern education is, you know, developing this critical faculty. Like in uh, modern life, we give great uh, preference for reason and logic. The way we think should be reasonable and logical, sensible. We want to make sense out of life, make the condition, you know, we can uh, create a sense of perfection with thoughts, the perfect political system, the perfect religious system, the perfect teacher, the perfect woman or man. We can create with superlative, English superlatives, ideas of perfection. <clears throat> about conditioned phenomena whose very nature <clears throat> is change. So in Vipassana, in, in meditation, where we, we emphasize the impermanence, anicca, of conditioned phenomena, it isn't about requesting or encouraging you to believe this, but to investigate like all conditions are impermanent, is not a doctrine that you, because you've ordained in Buddhist samanas, that you have to believe in. It's not presented as, a, as an imperative to believe, but it is a suggestion, a way of investigating the, what we, the, the delusions that we create, that we operate from as individual entities. So modern civilization, what we call civilization, is based on ideals that, we, that are created in the human mind that are beautiful, ideals are beautiful, and they're not to be disparaged, but they are conditions. And when we expect ideals to manifest as permanent reality, then we're in for, for a big disappointment because it's not the way it is. These conditions, 
that we're experiencing in these human forms, climate change, COVID pandemic, you know, there's so many ominous threats to, to the ideal of developing a perfect society, a perfect monastery, a perfect system, because as perfect or as good as some systems and conditions might be, they are changing because that's their nature. You can't petrify condition phenomena into permanency. And if you could, then it would be like a stone. It wouldn't have any, any life to it. What brings life, what brings luminosity, what brings peace is conscious awareness, which is available to us here and now. It's not something remote and refined. So waking up, Enlightenment, the English word enlightenment, what does that mean? That's another word, you know, so it is limited. Waking up to reality, awakening to Dhamma. Realizing Dhamma, where Dhamma is, is our reality not some belief or not some metaphysical concept that we hold in our mind because it's called uh, uh, Buddhism. So this investigation is, is why we're here at Amravati. The whole point of this monastery is, is to give this kind of encouragement to people who come here. Not to convert them to Buddhism or become monks or nuns, but to encourage them to awaken to the way things are which is up to them to, to practice accordingly, to find out the way things really are, what you believe, what you feel, the physical form that you identify with. The ego, what is that? You know, when you really investigate the ego, the ego can't see itself. <clears throat> So when you're just trying to develop a positive ego, think positively and, and identify with the goodness and virtue as a, as a condition that, that you cling to, that's better than doing the opposite, going into the dark realms of selfishness and hatred and anger. But it's still limited. Just trying to improve your personality so it's 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 uh, you're a nicer, more lovable, 
more beautiful individual is not to be despised, but it's that liberation. Because internally, we, we may, no matter how good we try to be, the critical mind will find endless faults, weaknesses. There's always subject to mistakes or errors. Because that's the way the conditioned realm is. It's changing. It's not, it's not permanently good. And no way can we make it permanently good, no matter how powerful we might become as an individual. So the Buddha, in his teaching, pointed to that, the first noble truth of suffering is not a belief, not something that Buddhists have to believe in, it's not a doctrine. But it's to be understood, to be investigated. What are the causes of suffering, you know? So, you know, this is, is what's so beautiful about this teaching is that it encourages you to investigate the most obvious conditions that create endless personal anguish or worry, anxiety, fear. So we learn from all of these, you know, it's not like going to get rid of fear and anxiety. It's not, the attempt to destroy evil or negativity. So it's not a, a war that we're engaged in, a kind of warlike attitude of destroying the kilesas, the defilements, which is how many of us are conditioned for that. Many of us were brought up in systems where we're trying to kill all the evil forces, get rid of the devil, destroy the axis of evil. We can't do that. It's to recognize good and evil are conditions that arise and cease according to other conditions. So that takes wisdom Discernment is not, you know, we know that something like killing, murdering somebody else. We might have that, sometimes feel like doing that, <clears throat> but we don't. If we, if we respect the sila, the moral code, the legal systems that we're brought up with in our various cultural identities. So you have the five precepts as a kind of, that's a, a foundation of restraint on action and speech. That's quite, you know, it's not just Buddhist, it's not just 
for Buddhists alone, five precepts. It's good advice for everybody. About behavior, about speech. So it, morality is an encouragement you know, the form, the Vinaya form that we have is uh, it's about proper behavior, proper speech, agreed ways of behaving as a community. But the real practice is awareness of the emotions, the, the, the habitual emotional conditions that we create throughout the day and night in our lives here at Amravati. And it's not, discerning isn't like being critical of them, but being aware they are the way they are. It's like this. So this, this statement, it's like this. I gave you all these little pins, and printed on these pins was it's like this. It's not like a passive resignation to life. Well, you can't help the way it is, it's just like this. It's not a negative resignation to fate, but an openness to this moment to be aware of it. It is the way this moment can only be like this. But it changes. So we're aware of change of impermanence. And then we ask ourselves, what is aware of impermanence? Can, Im can an impermanent condition be aware of impermanence? Can a condition, can a phenomenon be aware of itself? Can your ego really be aware of itself? Is awareness part of the ego? And can the ego be, ever become enlightened? These are questions to ask yourself. And in the early years of monastic life, I, you know, is, was very much aware of these teachings and using them, but still the, the conditioning was wanting to become enlightened, wanting to become an enlightened monk, wanting to become a stream emperor, wanting to attain arahantship. These are all rather inspiring goals because we see them as personal attainments, personal achievements. Then we start investigating what a person really is. What am I really? If everything I think and feel, every emotion I've ever experienced, all my past, the future, is all impermanent and not self. What, whatever gets enlightened then? So these are kind of questioning investigations. You don't get answers 
intellectual answers to these questions, but it, it's a way of opening to the way it is, here and now. Can, if you spend your life as a monk or a nun, will you, do you promise to get enlightened as a person when you've been keeping the sila for 20, 30 years? You know, you should be rewarded for good behavior is oftentimes how we think, making a lot of merit, being generous and kind, compassionate, helping others. And so the ego will, will hold on to these, these very good intentions, good perceptions. But what is aware of that, of holding on to perceptions of goodness, perceptions of enlightenment? Or is perception itself a condition? And can one perception know another perception? What knows a perception? What, what is aware of the presence and absence? of greed, hatred, or delusion. And so then it's with Lung Po Cha's famous mantra, Puto, the Buddha's name, the knowing, is that ego? Can that be ego? Can awareness be an ego? Can an awareness be personal? Can awareness ever get enlightened? Can awareness, no matter how where I am, get me enlightened? If I'm still operating from this belief that I am a real person 24-7, all the time. I'm Ajahn Sumedho all the time, even when asleep. And so, Lung Po Cha is always emphasizing the conventional reality, Samut Satcha, they, he used the Pali word Samut Satcha, conventional reality, which we use like Vinaya's conventional reality, agreed ways of behavior. But Dhamma, is not a convention. It's, you know, the best we can say is ultimate reality. And Puto, the Buddha's name, the very word Buddha, is the knowing of reality. So Puto is, a, is quite a powerful mantra to use. And this really, I found incredibly skillful in my life with Lung Po Cha because his emphasis was on this continuously. Every, you know, I used to, when I began to understand the language, you know, I found myself, you know, just more and more kind of open to this kind of practice. Because as life developed, the first few years, I was the only Western monk in, in the Thai monastery at Wat Pa Pong. 
And so I found myself kind of settling into life in Northeast Thailand, in Wat Pong, and I didn't, because of the, it's a totally different culture, different language, different way of living, you know, I was, began, I, I was quite willing to adapt to it. I wasn't rebellious or resistant to it. Sometimes I didn't understand it very well or appreciate everything, but I was aware. And I found <clears throat> that living there didn't bring up a lot of other issues in my life when the other, when Westerners started coming to stay with me at Wat home. So I enjoyed the kind of tranquility and community life of monasticism as I lived it with Lung Po Cha those first few years. But then a lot of emotions started coming up when other Americans started arriving. Because that's the cultural conditioning, that whole way of American conditioning is very different from Thai. And so what, how to handle it? You know, first I just wanted to run away. I, fi I finally ended up just accepting it. So when Lung Pao Cha asked me to establish the Wat Banana Chat, a branch monastery not far from the main monastery in Uborn, I, I was willing to do that even though personally I didn't really want to do that. Because I liked the peace and tranquility where the conflicts were, were not so in your face, so, so continuously challenging me as a person. And still operating from a lot of uh, doubts and worries that, that my own racial group, my own national group tend to, tended to bring up in me. But it's through this Puto practice that I be, began to realize how Lumpacha actually used everything in his life for awareness. That what was enlightened about Lumpacha wasn't the person as a person, it was awakened awareness to the reality of now, here and now, when, however it manifested. Whether it was favorable or unfavorable, conducive towards tranquility or chaotic. And I remember one period I was staying at a branch monastery called Tamsang Pet, which was north. Uh, uh, at that time, Amna Chalern was still a part of the 
Ubon. And I really liked Tham Thang Pat, and it was still very undeveloped, totally unmodern, a lot of caves and hills and forests, getting away from a lot of community life into more isolated situations. And there was another Western monk staying with me at Tham Thang Pat, and then one day Lumpa Cha comes and invites us to a fate in a village. So because Lung Po Choi invited me and the other monk to this fate, we, you know, we couldn't very well refuse. So uh, we went and there was this noisy loudspeaker, everything going on noisy, cacophonous sounds, crowds of people, and it was so unpeaceful, you know, and you've been so addicted to peace and tranquility. And then a kind of carnival atmosphere like that is very dis distracting, very unpleasant. So I kept wondering, why didn't Lumpa Chai invite us to attend this silly fete, this festival, everything just so worldly and noisy, and they, they love loudspeaker systems that blast Thai pop songs in your ears, and you, you know, you could just feel aversion arising and wanting to leave. But fortunately, you know, I did have enough wisdom to, to use the situation. I began to appreciate Lung Po Cha's tactics of putting me in a situation I didn't want to be in. It was a challenge to, to the idea of mindful living, the samana life, the renunciate form, seeking quiet, tranquil, getting tranquilized, making life a precious experience for yourself, for me and my practice, me and my samadhi. And how, how good I am at samadhi, at tranquilizing my mind. And yet in the midst of this fate, of this carnival, it was, I couldn't find tranquility there. You know, I just had to, the desire to run away, get out of there was strong. So that's what I was aware of. You know, I began to just open to this, this desire to run away, to get to, or to feel annoyed with Lung Po Cha for inviting me to it, or doubting Lung Po Cha's wisdom when he, he were, we were always talking about tranquility and quietness. Why invite me to a, a fate where it's all worldly and noisy? Questions and doubts. And these are practice, to be aware of noises like this, feeling of not wanting to be here is like this. Not wanting things to be the way they are is like this. 
holding on to ideals of perfection, of perfect meditation, of silence, of tranquility, of attaining samadhi, of getting somewhere in your practice, is like this. It's all down to the desires, to gamadana, bhavadana, vipavadana, sensual desire, desire for sensual pleasures, desire for becoming, desire for getting rid of things you don't like. So it's a study of desire. The puto is awareness of desire, not trying to judge desire and only have good desires. But even good desires are phenomena that arise and cease. Not to mention bad desires or desire to annihilate, to get rid of. So everything is part of the training. You know, the pandemic is, is here to teach us. Who can we blame for the pandemic? You know, is it Chinese or Donald Trump or the Americans or Wuhan Laboratory or God? Or, you know, this desire to, to blame is very strong in, in the news, everyday news you hear, this endless blaming process going on on the, the political level. Who's to blame for this pandemic? Wanting to pin the blame on somebody. And we find that in ourselves. We, 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 I could see so many habit patterns of my, my own practice when I was aware of just my first reaction when something go wrong, I said, who's to blame for that? Who are we going to blame for this mess or for this accident? And then through awareness, I began to observe that that's a reaction I always have. And I began to question, why do I always, why is that the first reaction to things that happen in life? Who's to blame for this? And I could see that was just, the way I was raised, it was always, you know, either the devil's to blame or the parents, the mother, the father, the teacher, the neighbors, the political system. So blaming is, is a, is a habit pattern we've developed in a society that very much is conditioned to blame things, blame, try to blame others or something else for what goes wrong in life, where in meditation we're observing this, this tendency that we begin to be aware of in ourselves, of blaming, either blaming ourselves, we're not good enough, we're disappointment, we don't live up to the expectations of our elders, we're failures, these are all kinds of self-blame, losers.
when, of course, the ideal is to be a winner, to become an enlightened, to practice meditation, enter the stream, go through the once-returner, non-returner to Arahant, go through the whole system as, as is written down in the scriptures on a, as a personal experience. So ask yourself, can a person be enlightened? And then you might take the attitude, well, Ajahn Sumedha says there's no person, nobody can get enlightened, and that's kind of depressing. But that's not what I'm saying. I'm questioning. Can my personality, once you begin to observe the puto aware of the personality as a condition arising and ceasing, that can never get enlightened. It has no life of its own. It's empty phenomena. Personality is just empty phenomena. And empty phenomena has no way of ever being enlightened because its very nature is changed and is empty. There's no essence, no soul, no kind of reality to it. It's temporary dependent on other conditions. So be aware of your personality. This awareness isn't personal. Satisampatanya is not like a personal achievement. So how do I become more mindful? can be a, a strong, you know, identity with me as a person wanting to hold some idea of mindfulness that I'd like to achieve. But being aware of that changes the perspective from grasping this idea I've got to develop mindfulness as some kind of personal practice, personal endeavor, into realizing that that is a condition I create. I've got to get something I don't have or improve my mindfulness as a person. And if you keep investigating Sakya Ditti, the first fetter, it takes you to emptiness. Because if you trust awareness, the personality finally stops arising and you begin to realize Dhamma, the reality, is here and now, it's timeless. It's always been here and now, it's never been absent from any of you. Except when we, when we don't see it, when we don't notice it, we're always caught up in the changing conditions of our thoughts, our emotions, our sense experiences, and they go on endlessly. This morning, Ajahn Asoko was reading the news to me about black holes, and it got so complicated <laughs> intellectually. <laughs> trying to figure out what black holes are and how they consume space and so forth. And, 
it's interesting on an intellectual level, but it's incredibly complicated. The more minute, more specialized it becomes, where the perception of a black hole is quite obvious. You know, you can even imagine that. You know, a hole is black and space, and, and you can develop a kind of knowledge of what's written about it in scientific journals. But it's all information. And are black holes ultimate reality? You know, are they something, is the universe going to be absorbed into a black hole eventually and we're just going to disappear into nowhere? You know, and that's a, a question we might ask ourselves intellectually, wanting to find an answer. Is life that we, that we are experiencing through these forms right now really sustainable? immortal. Can civilization as we know it now, can we fix it as a kind of permanent peak of perfection of democratic fairness and justice? Worldwide, a United Nations, one planet with a perfect, fair, uncorrupt, incorruptible political system where all the politicians, the presidents, the Congress, everybody is honest and fair, intelligent and wise. We can create an image of perfection right now sitting here in this temple. An image of perfection is all, you know, the superlatives of the English language or of any language. But perfection, ultimately, is Dhamma. So perfection is with us. It's not something separate. It's not something you get, but something you, beget, you recognize. And the recognition of Dhamma is Dhamma. So your refuge in Dhamma is here and now. You know, as a person, your personality begins to fade away. It becomes unimportant. So you still have a personality, like all these, Lung Po Cha had a personality. But he knew what it was, and his teaching was not about his personality or about him, self as a great teacher, enlightened master, but this continuous encouragement to look at the here and now the reality that we're experiencing, that each one of us must realize for ourselves. To be experienced individually by the wise. And I found personally a relief to realize my personality could never get enlightened. And to be relieved of being bound, endlessly kind of controlled by my sense of individuality and personal conditioning. 
I found that, you know, reason why I became a monk in the beginning was I, by the age of 30, I was so tired of myself as a person. When I was 20, I thought, I'm going to live a meaningful life. And uh, the world is open for me, and I'm going to achieve all kinds of things. By the time I was 30, 10 years, a decade later, I was so bored with, with all my idealism and hopes and expectations and disappointments, disillusionments. And you, you begin to hear yourself saying the same things over and over again, thinking the same, reacting emotionally to, in the same way to situations. So I thought at age 30, I thought, I don't want to live 30 more years if I just have to go through this. Another 30 years of this personality guiding me through making life difficult and problematic for me wherever I go. So the challenge was, you know, the reason for coming to, going to Thailand was to find, a, uh, because of my interest, faith in Buddhism, to find a way out of the trap of the conditioning process that I was strongly identified with by age 30. So Puto is a, is a kind of, not as something to grasp blindly, but to use, because it can lead to tranquility if you use, just use it as a mantra. Just think Puto, Puto all the time and stop letting your mind wander into other thoughts. I found that helpful in the beginning. because my mind would easily get distracted and wander away into thinking patterns, habit patterns, and I found just this puto was, uh, if I just thought one word all the time, and so I, I'd say, because I was a rapid thinker, my mind just went quickly off the track I had to intensify, I couldn't do puto on the inhalation and exhalation, the mind would wander. You know, Lung Po Chao was teaching it with puto, inhaling put and exhaling to. I couldn't do that at first. Especially exhalation, my mind was, you know, I found it easy to concentrate on inhaling, but exhaling, the mind tended to wander. So instead of trying to work that out as a practice, I just used puto, saying it as fast as I could. Remember sitting in my kuti at Wat Nun puto, 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 and not let another thought enter my mind. Eventually, you could slow down. Eventually, I could do it with inhaling, exhaling. 
in, in Wadon Penau, I didn't know Puteau then, I knew let go. That's the insight into the second noble truth, let go. So I used uh, my, I made up my own mantra, let go. When I went to Watpapong, then Nungpa Cha was, encouraged me to use Puto. These are like words to use to investigate. So eventually, you know, you, you hear yourself thinking Puto and it disappears into the void of awareness, conscious awareness, before you even think. There's nothing. If I, if I decide I'm going to think Puto, then I'm aware, then I'm aware before I think Pu. You know, you can be that aware before you even think a word or pronounce it. Because you can think all kinds of words before you, without pronouncing the words. But what is before the thought? Before you think puto, and there's awareness, but there's nothing there. There's no form. Silence. And you, you notice that. Before I didn't notice that. Like not noticing the space, not noticing consciousness, but being only caught up in endlessly in habitual behavior, reactivity, emotional reactivity, caught in our own perceptions of our ego, and how we see Buddhism, Amravati, the monks, the nuns, all these are perceptions that we, we, we can grasp and live our lives just seeing each other through our own creations, our own reactions to life. Where when we become aware, when we begin to realize awareness, is something you don't create. You can't make your personality mindful. Personality is words or thoughts, memories. They, they can't be mindful. Sakyaditi, the first fetter, or ego, personality, this sense of a separate identity as a, the body is very strong. Cultural conditioning, Sila Patabaramasa is, you know, we've all been conditioned by our cultural conditions. How I see the world, as, you know, my generation is, is nearly gone, you know, and you read obituaries, you, my generation is dying off very quickly. They're all old octogenarians. Nonogenarians. So sometimes, you know, the generational differences are strongly identified with. 
old people tend to strongly identify with their youth or what was they were conditioned with 80, 90 years ago and complete, completely failed to understand younger generations brought up in, with computers and internet and modern machine, modern technology that didn't exist when I was a youth, when I was a child. So that affects how one sees and experiences life in terms of cultural conditioning, why it's hard for old people or young people to understand each other because there is, a, you know, generational differences of experience, of conditioning. So conditioned phenomena is like that. It's all about differences. It's about youth and old age, about male and female, about race, about culture, all conditioned phenomena, silabhattabharamasa, religion, if just attached to religious doctrines, then that's silabhattabharamasa. So that's a, the second fetter where the Buddha, you know, puts it right in front of your face. The first fetter is the ego, the second is, is cultural conditioning, social conditioning. And the third is wichikicha, which translates into English as doubt, which is attachment to thinking. So, if you're not a thought, you know, ask yourself, if you're not what you think you are, you're not a, a thought or a concept or a phenomenon, it's not to believe that. Not about a belief in anatta as no self, you know, it's not a believing doctrinal proposition, but it is a reflection. If there's no self, this awareness is not personal. Unless I create it into a person. Consciousness is not personal. Consciousness through the senses can seem very personal because senses, we identify with our eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, mind states, you know, but the, the way of reflection, of investigation is to see that that's not what we are. We're not a phenomenon. We're not what we think. Can we say we are this awareness? We can say that, that's one way of reflecting. We can say anything. Or your true self. But they end up as just words, no matter what terminologies you use, to where there's just this awareness, pure awareness, that is peaceful. It's not personal. It doesn't begin and end. It's not a phenomenon. 
So this is the end of suffering. So I offer this as a reflection.